0: All right, Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do the first 16 verses here of Acts chapter 20, which puts us in good shape for next week. Next week is a great little message of Paul teaching the elders of the church at Ephesus. And I really like that because you've got a small glimpse into what it was like as Paul as a pastor, if you will, teaching, not just being out there and being an evangelist, but really getting a chance to teach. And it's going to be a good message next week. So one quick point I just want to mention, one of the points we're really going to hit hard next week is verse 20 where Paul says, I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. What you see in the early church is this idea of they had their public time of teaching and worship. That's what we're doing right now. That's what we do on Wednesday. But you also see this idea of going from house to house. You've heard us mention this before over the last few weeks. We feel led this fall to at least attempt to try um, some, maybe some small group studies in houses. We've had people come up and are willing to host. We're putting the final plans on this vision. If this is something that you want to be involved with, please see us. Let us know. And I'm hoping this is something that you want to get involved with too we're looking at just trying in the fall for just a few weeks maybe just six weeks stopping before the holiday starts then stopping and saying lord is this fruitful is this something you want us to continue doing we think it has the potential to be a real blessing but we want it to be a blessing to you guys to grow spiritually as you get a chance to hopefully know each other better i mean on sundays and wednesdays it's nice there's a couple services on sunday but it makes it tough to really build those relationships. And so we're hoping to possibly do that. Verse 20 there, that's our vision for that. And we'll get to that next week as well. But with that being said, Acts chapter 20. Let's have a quick word of prayer and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, as always, you wrote this. And we pray that we would listen. Let your spirit lead, guide, and teach in all ways and all things. Thank you. Thank you for the time to be here. And just pray you would bless this time as we get ready to teach and learn what you have to say in your name. Amen. Now, I was going to put a map up here on the screen, but it really doesn't work because we're going to be talking all lesson about these different towns. I just encourage you, if you have a study Bible, usually in the back of your Bible there's different maps, and one of them is going to have Paul's different missionary journeys. We're going to talk about a lot of different towns today. I encourage you, keep that map open, because as we go through these towns, you can at least place where Paul is going here on his different missionary journeys. So with this being said, Paul's main focus is he wants to get back to Jerusalem. That's what he wants to do. And we have a little bit of a time frame here. If you look in verse 6, it talks about the days of unleavened bread, which would be Passover... And that would be during the either March or April months. And then you see here in verse 16 that he wants to get there before Pentecost, which would be 40 days after. So with that being said, the lesson here this morning is going to cover about 40 days of Paul's life as you see him travel and go through things. But as he goes through these things, you're going to see different areas pop up and how this applies to our life as well. So with that being said, let's jump right into it. Acts chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar had ceased... We'll stop right there. It's going to take us a while to get through this this morning. The uproar is mentioned in Acts 19. Acts 19 is where Paul was in Ephesus and he was preaching. And the people that took care of the temple of Diana were bothered and upset. And they thought that Paul was doing something to take away worship of Diana. So therefore there was this riot wanting to arrest him, hurt him, attack him. So after that uproar, which is chapter 19... Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now we had gone over the region and encouraged him with many words. He came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And so Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Athesalonians, Gaius of and Timothy and Tychius and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi. After the days of unleavened bread and five days joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. Now let's stop there for a second. If you were just reading through these first five verses, you would give up. What are these towns? What are these names? What does it matter? I think it shows a couple things. First off, you see this. Luke is mentioning the word we. This is written in the first person narrative. This is a real story. This is a real group of people really traveling these towns talking about this. For us, it sounds strange. But if for some reason I said, I really have on my heart that I need to get down to, I don't know, Atlanta. So you know what? I I feel the Lord wants me to go to Atlanta. So going down south, we traveled through Cincinnati, then we went through Nashville. That doesn't sound strange to us because we follow that. This is just basically saying on our way back to Jerusalem, this is the area we went through, and these are the people that went through with us. Real people, really traveling, hence the term we. Now number two, these guys, verse four, Sopatar, Aristarchus, Sundicus. Who are these guys? A lot of times when the Bible mentions you a name like this, keep that in the back of your memory banks. These guys come pretty important here, especially verse four: Timothy and Trophimus. Those guys are kind of introduced to us here now, and they become very key characters in certain situations here, especially over the next couple of chapters. Now, second point on this: isn't it pretty neat that their names are mentioned? Not to be selfish, not to be prideful. Wouldn't you kind of like your name to be mentioned in the Bible? Wouldn't that be kind of cool? Some Sunday morning, people are talking and teaching, and it talks about you. Why are these guys' names mentioned? Because they were considered honorable to be with Paul going through this. And this is just a little bit of that neat picture of, wow, Lord, we were faithful to serve you. And thousands of years later, we're stumbling over these guys' names. But look at what they went through. Paul, verse 20, verse 1, uproar. He has to leave. Verse 3, plotted against him. He has to leave. If you wanted to travel with Paul in the New Testament, one of his missionary journeys, this was not a vacation. You literally were putting your life on the line. These guys are recorded for all of history to show us. They were willing to stop and say, I am willing to do this. I am willing to go where the Lord has called us, to do what the Lord has called us to do, no matter what the threat is. We are very blessed living here right now that we're able to meet freely and openly without threat of violence. There's a lot of places in the world where that doesn't happen. These guys at this time, by claiming to be a Christian and by following Paul, they literally were putting their life on the line. And I think there's something here of the Lord saying, let's mention these guys because they are going out to share the gospel. And as they share the gospel, they may not come back. So it's kind of neat that these people's names are mentioned there. So we have the towns, the locations, the people. That's enough of an introduction in the time frame. Let's get to some spiritual points. What did Paul do? Well, you see, in verse 1, he embraces the disciples, and in verse 2, he's encouraging them. Some of your translations may say exhorting them. Encourage, exhort. That literally means to call to one's side. So if I want to encourage you, that means I literally go to your side, and I get myself involved in the situation you're in. It's a closeness. It's a oneness. See, a lot of times when we think of the word encourage, it's encouraged from a distance. Hey, I'll be praying for you. Hey, I hope things go better as we kind of keep an arm's length away. To really encourage somebody from the biblical sense is to say, I know you're going through a tough time and I want to be involved with your life during this tough time. Come over, eat with me, let's pray about this. Can I come over to your house? Let's get together and be one, call to one side during this difficult time. Problem is, the way we look at church today is we usually show up on a Sunday there's some time of worship, some announcements, a teaching, some fellowship. One more song and then we go home. It's the responsibility of the pastor, the staff, to stop and say, we're going to encourage people. It's the responsibility of the church to look around. What would happen if we come in on a Sunday morning and we'd stop and say, that person has no one sitting beside them. I'm going to go over and meet them, encourage them. That person looks like they're having a difficult time. See, what happens is we see somebody having a difficult time, we all think, oh, I should probably just leave them alone. See, i got a completely different mindset. If I see someone having a difficult time, I think I should probably go talk to them. We were at Splash Universe with the boys earlier this year, and one of these kids, not one of our kids, one of the other kids fell, and it was this awful head, I mean, blood everywhere type thing, and it was awful. And I saw the mom and dad just holding this child as they were waiting for the ambulance to come, and you just, see, I mean, you know, as a parent, just fear fear of what's going on. And everybody's keeping a distance. You know, every few seconds one of the staff members come over, are you okay? And immediately leave. And my heart just broke from and so then I thought, boy, somebody should really just go over there and encourage them and pray with them. So I'm looking around, Lord, just send somebody over there to encourage them and pray with them. It was me. I go over and I just say, what's your son's name? And they told me and I said, do you care if I just pray with you real quick? And just pray with them. You know, we always want someone else to do the encouraging. You know, the other day, I walked in, and I saw Dawn looking, my wife looking through the directory at church. And I'm like, what, what are you doing? And it's like, well, isn't this what you told us to do? Go through, and it's like, somebody listened. I didn't know anybody actually listened. Go through the directory and say, Lord, who's, who's on the heart? Walk in. Can you imagine if you come in on a Sunday and say, I'm here to minister. I'm here to encourage. Don't get me wrong. I'm also here to get fed. I'm here to have a time of worship. I'm here to be blessed in fellowship. But Lord, Who can I encourage? Who can I minister to? Imagine if every time you left your house, Lord, who can I encourage? Who can I minister? Is it awkward? You bet it's awkward. It's tough. I remember one time I was at Walmart, and I saw this gal pushing herself in in a wheelchair, and she had all of her groceries. So she would literally go push one hand, flip over the other side, push another hand, flip over the other side. And it was taking her forever. And same thing. Somebody should go help her. One of the paid staff people at Walmart should go help her. <sighs> okay, I guess it's me. So I went over and said, Do you, can I help you? I mean, I, I'm, I'm used to cold calling. people. I, I, yeah, can I help you? Yeah. She goes, yeah, I'm, I'm heading towards check checkout. She goes, oh, but there's one more thing i got to go pick up. I said, that's fine. I can take you there. Where is it at? She goes, it's down this aisle. So we turned down this aisle. As we turn down this aisle, I'm like, we're, we're, we're in the alcohol aisle. That's, that's where we're at. I'm hoping she wants the beef jerky on the end of the left. Stop. It's a true story. Stop in front of the wine. We have to make a wine selection. I'm like, I, I don't know if I'm supposed to be doing this. You know, I mean, according to Timothy, I'm not supposed to be drinking this stuff. And I'm just thinking, this is when somebody from church is like, hey, pastor, good to, What are you doing? Helping the guy in the wheelchair get wine. That's what, that's what I'm doing. Encouragement is tough. It really is. And for us to really get involved in someone's life and say, I want to encourage you, it is a sacrifice on your part. And to be honest, it's messy and it's dirty. Because if somebody needs encouragement, it generally means their life is not going very well. And since their life is not going very well, they need someone to come beside them to say, I'm here to pray with you and encourage you and be with you. That's tough to do. You know what else is tough? Your life is tough. So you're stopping here saying, Lord, I'm supposed to encourage this person while I'm struggling? See, the neat thing about this is we know what Paul said to them to encourage them in verse 2. We know this. Can you go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1? We can put all this together and we know that 2 Corinthians was written during this time when Paul was doing this. So go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and let's see what Paul actually said to them to encourage them. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. Stop right there. We just read that. Acts 19, he's threatened with his life. Acts 20, people are wanting to kill him. So Paul is saying, I want you to know, as I'm encouraging you, guess what was going on? Verse 8. That we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. That's powerful. That's powerful. Paul is saying, I want to let you know, the difficult times we were facing in verse 8 were so difficult, we thought we were going to lose our life, we were burdened beyond measure, above strength. That's what he was going through. Now, if you go read Acts 19, you don't know that. Because in Acts 19, when they're rioting in Ephesus, Paul's the big burly man. Let me go in and talk to them. What was really going on in Paul's heart? He thought he was going to die. See, sometimes, publicly, publicly, We're really good about putting a smile on our face. We're really good about coming into church and no one knows that we just had a knockdown, drag-out argument in the family with the car right out there. No one knows that it was a huge struggle to get here and I'm so overwhelmed with sin right now that I can't even think. Someone doesn't know how how just bad I feel and I'm just full of guilt or shame or despair or discouragement. I mean, I'm coming in and making sure everything sounds good. See, Paul is saying, guys, we were so burdened I thought we were going to die. Verse 9, yet we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. Who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. What was the purpose of this difficult time? Verse 9, see we keep talking about encouragement. So I'm supposed to help you during difficult times. You're supposed to help me during difficult times. You're supposed to help me grow in the Lord. I'm supposed to help you grow in the Lord. That's what we're supposed to do. Well, can't we just reach a point of saying, Lord, why do we even have to go through it? The purpose is verse 9. The sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. What Paul is basically saying in verse 9, Lord had me go through this to basically remind me the only thing that I need is him. See, that's the purpose of difficult times, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, verse 9. When you go through a difficult time, it's the Lord's basically way of saying, I'm going to strip you of everything and everybody but me to show you that the only thing you need is me. See, if you still have people, if you still have sometimes people in your life, you're thinking that they're getting you through it. Sometimes the Lord says, I want to take absolutely everything away from you to say that the only thing you have is me to show you that. That's a wilderness time. See, the thing about wilderness times is they're difficult, but they're used. They're important. Paul went through a wilderness time. Jesus went through a wilderness time. Moses, David, all these guys went through wilderness times where God said, I'm going to take away everything but me to show you that all you need is me. What's the problem with the wilderness time? We want to get out of that wilderness at the first exit that we see. If we're not feeling good physically or spiritually, we're struggling or emotionally, it's a tough time. Lord, stop this. Help me. I remember when we drove out to California years ago. We were on the other side of the Rockies, and we started going to this very uh, dead area. And so you'd run into these signs that would say things like, you know, basically nothing for the next 40 miles. And so it's kind of cool. I mean, you, you first start driving into that, and you're the first few miles into it, and you're like, this It's cool. This is like the play. I've never been so alone. You know, we're driving through this. And then after a couple miles in it, you start stopping and thinking, it's 35 miles until we run into anybody. What happens if the car breaks down? What happens if there's an emergency? So you go from this being kind of fun to complete fear to I can't wait till we get through this. And I think that's the same thing that happens sometimes spiritually to us in wilderness times. It happens to me. This idea of I feel it's a wilderness time, and I'm like, okay, God, I got this. I see what you're doing. It's just going to be you and me now for this season of life. I got it. I'm ready. What do you have in store for me? Five minutes later, Lord, please make it stop. I mean, this is what happens. And so Paul is basically saying, verse 9, we went through those times to take away everything, but just to show us the only thing we can do is trust in God. And what does God do? Verse 10, Who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, and whom we trust that he will still deliver us. If you're following in verse 10, you have past tense, present tense, and future tense in one sentence. He has delivered you, he is delivering you, and he will deliver you. That's the point that God is trying to make. Whatever you're going through right now, he has delivered people, he will deliver you, and he is going to deliver you. I mean, it's an amazing thing when you stop and think about it. In the moment of it, oh boy, it's tough to see. What is our job then? You're going through a wilderness. I'm going through a wilderness. The whole point is basically it's all you and Jesus. So I just step back. No, verse 11. You also helping together in prayer for us. That's powerful. Yeah, I don't know how many times I've said this and I try to catch myself and I say something like this. Well, the least we can do is pray. What's the most we can do? You know, or I'll say something like, oh, it sounds like the only thing we can do is pray. What's the best thing we can do? Paul is basically saying, verse 8, I thought we were going to die. Verse 9, it showed me the only thing I can trust is God. Verse 10, He's the only one that will deliver me. Verse 11, your role is to pray for us. Sounds good to me. Let's do that. Let's encourage one another. Let's uplift one another. Let's exhort one another by praying and being with them during the dark, tough, messy times. And sometimes it's not just the difficult times. It's also the time of sin. I hate that encouragement. See, to encourage means to come to one side. So sometimes I come to people's side and the only thing I can tell them is, listen, there's things in your life right now that are not healthy for you, spiritually or for your family, and I love you enough to tell you I think you need to do this. See, that's actually encouragement. It just doesn't sound that way. It sounds like you're picking on me. It sounds like you're judging me. It sounds like you're telling me what to do. No, I'm coming to your side and realizing there's things in your life that is going to cause harm to you and your family, and I want to encourage you to do the right thing. It's not taking sides, it's not attacking, it's actually encouragement. Paul, that's what he does. Not only does it, he also lived it as well. So we have our time frame set here in verse 6. We're in that March-April time frame, Passover time, feast days of unloving bread. What happens now, verse 7, on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embraced him, saying, Do not trouble yourself, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Verse 7, you see them meeting on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. So as Jews, they would have honored the Sabbath on Saturday. So this would have been a work day for them. So it's quite possible that they didn't stop working until evening, 6 o'clock or so. And basically Paul is saying, it's time for me to go. So we're going to cram a bunch of Sundays into one Sunday. We're going to have this nonstop Bible study. So it happens that they go until midnight. This guy's falling asleep. He's probably worked all day. Verse 8, some people think that that verse was put in there about the lamps to maybe just say the lamps are sucking all the oxygen out of the room. I don't know. Point is, he falls out of the window. He's dead. Paul says, don't worry. Life is still in him. It doesn't mean he's still alive. It means that he can be brought back. He's brought back. And then I love verse 11. Hey, he's risen from the dead. Let's go eat now. So we go eat, and let's do a little more Bible study and prayer, and I'm going to leave now. That's the service of the early church right there. This is why we don't have a two-story church, because we don't want anybody falling out of the windows. Now, a couple points to say about this. First off, if you're interested in this, Eutychus' name means fortunate. Good name. So, with that being said, what are we supposed to take out of this? First thing I see, and I'm not making a joke out of this, people fall asleep in church. That's my first point right there. I remember the first time I saw somebody fall asleep when I was teaching. I remember I was, I was teaching and I see them fall asleep and I'm like, what am I supposed to do? I mean, do I say something? I mean, I don't want to embarrass them. So I didn't say anything. Oh, do I go up to them after church? And say something, No, I just let it go. And you get used to it. You know, I've been teaching for 17 years. So people fall asleep on me all the time. I'm kind of used to it by now. The ones that always surprise me are the people that don't fall asleep, but they're just, like, not even trying. Like, they'll, like, stare out the window. I remember one time I was watching this one guy, and through the whole message, he was just literally, like, like, if I'm teaching, this is the stage, he's just, like, looking out the window the whole time. And, like, so much so that I was, like, trying to come over, I'm like trying to see what he's seeing, you know what I mean? Because I'm thinking, there's got to be something amazing out there. I mean, it's just got to be. And you know, people just sometimes are here, but they're not here. I get that. I understand that. This guy had a long day, he was there. Maybe he was really trying diligently to fall, not fall asleep. I had somebody come up to me one time, and I completely understand this. People's work schedules are funky, third shift, second shift, etc. And sometimes we have third shifters that come, worked all night, and they're trying to make the 8.30 service. Or we have people that maybe are a second shift or first shift, and it's a funky time for them. So they come, and, they, and they've fallen asleep. And I remember they come up to me after church, and they'll say, like, man, I am so Sorry. I'm so tired, I, I, I wanted to be here, I didn't mean to, I'm sorry. And I always tell them, listen, I just respect the fact that you're trying to come. I honor that, God honors that, and I appreciate your coming here. But this guy falls asleep, <laughs> completely falls asleep. Paul goes down, verse 10, falls on him and braces him and says, don't worry, don't worry. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? kind of an amazing story. I always find it fascinating verse 11, they come back up and they talk a long while and they eat. Seriously, would you not at that time basically say, you know what, Paul, you were saying some great stuff, but I really don't care anymore about what you're saying. Eutychus just died and came back. I want to know what he thinks. Talk about a testimony. Tell us what it was like. They come back, they eat, and they move on. But there's a couple points here I want to make about this. Verse 10 fell on him, embraced him. Paul fell on this body that just fell three stories. We do everything we can to stay away from death, don't we? I heard somebody say one time, at birth it's messy, at death it's messy, and in between we try to forget that. There's a lot of truth to that. We don't like talking about death. We don't like this understanding of it. So we really try to pretend that it just won't happen. You know, we... It's going to happen. I'm one of those type of guys that, that will laugh at the funeral. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, but if I know the person is born again and saved, and I know that they know Christ, then there's a rejoicing. There's a sorrow and a sadness at their passing. But they're still rejoicing, and, and I know that. And I sure hope that if I would die here unexpectedly or soon, I hope you guys would have a fun time at my funeral. I told you, guys are nodding. Please don't nod like that. Um, Laughter you know, I, I, I told my boys, one of the things I tell my boys, and you may disagree with me, is I tell them when we're doing devotions, basically saying, listen, guys, I may not be here forever, so let me ingrain into you truth, so therefore when I'm gone, this truth has been ingrained into you. And then I was teased on. I said, listen, I'm worth more dead than I am alive. I completely get that. So I've told the boys, when I die, go out to Toys R Us. Go buy yourself something like that. Oh, stop it. We're all going to die. Listen, it's part of it. And if we act like we're never going to meet our maker, then sometimes we don't carry eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes says that he has put eternity in your heart to remind you that, yes, you may be on this world 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, whatever it is, that is a drop in the bucket to your existence with Jesus for all of eternity. We have to keep an eternal perspective on all that we do and all that we say. But death? Some people just start getting all freaked out about it. Jump, if you will, with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings 4. I think it's important here. As Paul came down to this body, Eutychus, that had died, he fell on the body. He embraced the body. He was willing to touch the dead. And I want to build on this. 2 Kings 4. 2 Kings 4 is really a great chapter, and if we had time, it would be wonderful to do all of it. But we don't have time. So we're going to take verses 8 through 37, and we're going to sum it up here in just a couple minutes. What was happening is there's this woman, and she's known as the Shunammite woman. This Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 4, Elisha the prophet would kind of pass by, so she went to her husband and had this great idea, saying, hey, Elisha the prophet passes by, can't we take a room for him and kind of make this be a stop-off place for him? So they did. They made this little upper room for him, so whenever he would pass by, he could kind of just stay there. Well, we can kind of piece together here that this woman didn't have any kids. And she truly desired and wanted a child. So what happens is this. Is Elisha comes to her and basically says, verse 15, call her. When he called her, she stood in the door. Then he said, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. So the Shunite woman gets to have a child. Now look at her response. And she said, verse 16, No, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. Now, was this a woman that maybe had so much hope that it kept falling through? Maybe that she had been pregnant a few times and it didn't work out. Maybe she had tried, I don't know. But she'd so desperately wanted that child. She basically is telling Elisha in verse 16. My paraphrase is, Don't you lie to me. So what happens is, verse 17, she had the baby. What a blessing. Verse 18, and the child grew. Now it happened one day that he went out to his father to the reapers, and he said to his father, My head, my head. So he said to a servant, carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door upon him, and went out. So this child she had wanted, this child that was miraculous, this child that was promised, now dies. Verses 22 and 23, she basically tells her husband, I'm going to go. I need to go find the man of God, Elisha. So she went. So as she's going, verse 25, Elisha sees her coming. His servant Gehaziah says, Look, here comes the Shunite woman. Verse 26, please run now to meet her and say to her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered it as well. Now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet, but Gehaziah came near to push her away. So she finally gets there, and it's almost like the emotion breaks loose. She grabs onto Elisha and says, I'm not letting go. Gehaziah, the servant, is trying to push this woman away. So what happens? Verse 27, the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Verse 20, so she said, Did I ask a son of my Lord, did I not say, Do not deceive me? Basically, verse 28 is basically saying, Why did you do this? Why? Have you ever had that moment with God where you feel like he has blessed you, and then he just kind of like totally take it away? I mean, it almost like comes across as mean God. Here, have this wonderful day of blessing. It's a wonderful day. And the next day now is absolutely awful. It's like, what are you trying to do here, Lord? You, you give this to us and you take this away. I mean, is this your sixth sense of humor here? This is, seems to be what she's saying in verse 28. Verse 29, then he said to Gehazia, Get yourself ready. Take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not answer him, but lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Now Gehaziah went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore, he went back to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, there was the child laying dead on his bed. He went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. He went up, laid it on the child, put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child came back warm. He returned, walked back and forth in the house, and again went up, stretched himself out on him. And then the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunanite woman. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She went in, fell at his feet, bowed to the ground, then she picked up her son and went out. A couple points here. I believe what this is trying to teach us is ministry. Ministry has to have contact. It has to be. When Eutychus died in Acts, Paul came down, fell on him, and embraced him. He just didn't look his head out the window from the third story up and say, Lord, I pray you heal him. No. He went down... Got involved. A lot of times we feel led to get involved, but we don't want to. It's messy. It's dirty. So, what do we do? We do what Gehaziah does. Verse 31 I will try to work with my staff. Staff, four or five feet long. What does that show? Work from a distance. Oh, you're having a struggle in your life and marriage? I'll put my staff between you and I. So I will be here. I'm helping you. But I'm going to keep a distance between us. Because you know what? I don't want to get my hands dirty. Your, your life is a mess. So what happens is we have these, all these superficial contacts. Because there's a staff distance between us of four to five foot. I heard a pastor teach one time just recently. He was talking about friends and friendship. And he was talking about, I think he said he had 800 people or 900 people that were friends on Facebook. And he said he figured there was probably five of them that he could call at 3 a.m. in the morning. He goes, what's the definition of a friend? I'm, I'm ministering to that person. How? Well, I'm keeping five foot between us. No, that's not ministry. Encouragement means you go to one's side. You get right beside them. You get involved in their life, they get involved in their life. The problem was with church today, we have reached this point where we like these little superficial relationships that we have a five-foot staff between us because it's not as messy. Listen, if you really want to see somebody go deeper in their life, you've got to get involved. Look what here at Elisha does, verse 34. Mouth, mouth, eyes, eyes, hands, hands. You can't get any closer than that. That's the point. Is you really want to see the spiritually dead come to life in Christ, you've got to get out there and touch the dead. You've got to be willing to do it. You've got to be willing to get your hands dirty. You've got to be willing to get involved in messy situations. You've got to be willing to say, okay, this is not how I'd probably spend my day today, but Lord, if you've called me into this situation, I will do it. Too often we go take the staff, we put it on the dead person, step back and say, I sure hope it works. And we make ourselves feel better. Well, I did something. No. Go contact, make contact, and go from there and see what happens. One more story similar to this. Go to 2 Kings 13. One more story about Elisha and his ministry. 2 Kings 13. 2 Kings 13. Here in 2 Kings 13, we have Elisha's death. Verse 14, Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. So he has one last meeting with Joash the king. But let's jump ahead to when he dies. Verse 20, then Elisha died and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders. And they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now, that's not really a refrigerator verse. We really don't uh, talk about that one too much. Just look at the context of this Elisha's dead. They're burying him. These raiders come that we're going to try to steal. So they see these guys coming. They have this dead body and they say, Listen, we got to get out of here. Throw the body in Elisha's grave and run. They throw the body in Elisha's grave. It touches the bones of Elisha and the guy comes back alive. That is a strange little story in the Bible. Now, what does it mean and what does it represent? I have no idea. No, I'm kidding. Um, I think what it means and represents, for my personal opinion, is this. You are trying to do the first thing with Elisha. You're trying to make contact with the spiritually dead. You want them to know Christ. You want them to know Christ desperately. You're getting involved in their life. You're praying with them. You're encouraging them. You're doing contact with them. And guess what happens? Nothing. 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 I had a situation years ago where someone came up to me who had such a heart for their family, really wanted their family to come to know Christ. And and I said, you know what? It may not happen in your lifetime. It may not. That's a struggle to think about because you want to see the kids, the grandkids, come to Christ now. But isn't the goal just to have them come to Christ? And I remember them saying, well, if they're not going to come to Christ now, when I die, who's going to be the one? Well, Elisha was bringing people back to life even when he was dead. My point is this. I've done enough funerals. I've been around enough of this stuff before that when I'm sitting there doing that funeral and I'm talking about you and this wonderful saint that you were in Christ, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to give the gospel message during that funeral. So in your death, your loved ones are going to hear the gospel. In your death... They're going to be reminded of those things. Think about this. The people that have played a key role in your life spiritually, some of them may have already passed on. Don't you still hear their voice in your head of them telling you those little tidbits, them sharing those little verses? Think back to those people that have first initially discipled you, encouraged you, and they may have already gone on with the Lord. They're still there in that sense of, I remember what they said. So you're planting seeds right now. Yes, you're doing face-to-face contact, and you're really hoping to see the fruit. Fruit may not come until later on. Because even in death, your death, there's still an opportunity for lights and witnesses. So therefore, don't think when you die, it's all over. It may all begin when you die. So what I see with Elisha is to really reach the dead. Boy, you can reach the dead in your life now. Just don't use the staff. Face-to-face contact. Or you could even reach the, the dead in your death by being a light and a witness there. What did he do? He went and came, fell down on Eutychus, brought Eutychus back. Elisha, what did he do? He went, contact with Eutychus, excuse me, with the uh, Shunammite son, brought him back. Even in his death, he was. Ministry is messy, ministry is dirty, it involves contact, and we need to be willing to do that. Let's jump back and finish this up. One last point here, then we're done. Verse 13. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos, there intending to take Paul on board, for he, so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. When he had met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day we came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogama. The next day we came to Miletus. For Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so that we would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. That sets us up next week for the message to the Ephesians' elders. One last point I want to say about this. All these towns here, we kind of skip over them sometimes. Once again, I encourage you, grab that map, look at it. But verse 13, this is kind of interesting. If you would look at this on a map, what happens is there's this kind of this jut of land. And what Luke is basically saying here, who wrote the book of Acts, is that we sailed around this jut of land. Paul said, I'm going to walk across it, and I'll meet you at the other side. Now, it doesn't really say why Paul said that in verse 13. And I don't really want to speculate too much, but I just want to tell you what's kind of on my heart. I look at verse 13, and I see Paul walking across by himself, and it says, I'll meet you on the other side. Sometimes you just need that quiet time with the Lord. And you know, sometimes you really just need to find time to get away where it's just you and the Lord. And I'm wondering if verse 13, Paul basically said, you know what, the Lord and I have some stuff we need to talk about. We're just going to walk by ourselves across this jut of land. We'll catch you on the other side then. Now, maybe that's true. Maybe we'll get up to heaven and I'll say, Hey, Paul, why did you walk across the sows? He may say, Boy, James and Luke was really annoying me and I just need to get away from him. I don't know. I take it as he wanted that break. I know for me how important it is to have that quiet time. I mean, it's vital to my day. If I don't have it spiritually, I'm not 100%. And it's tough, especially as life has grown. As you know, we have five boys, so the house is always loud. So if I'm ever working from home, I'm usually in my bedroom with the door shut. You can still hear everything that's going on. It's not quiet. Our youngest, Tyrus, who's two, he's now reached the point where he'll come over and pound on the door and say, Dad, Dad. Now the older boys know not to come knock on the door. So what they do is they write notes and they slip them underneath the door. (laughs) That's what they do. So quiet time is difficult. So you know what I found? I found that means I need to put more effort into finding a quiet time with the Lord. See, this is what we have a tendency to do. My life is so busy, so crazy, it's difficult to find any time for me and the Lord to be alone together. Well, that means you need to look harder because that is a vital part of your walk with the Lord. And I can go through all the people in the Bible that had that time with the Lord, but the best example is Christ. You've heard me mention this before. Mark chapter 1 Jesus got up early in the morning before everybody else found a secluded spot and said, It's just me and God the Father. That is so vital. So vital. I don't know why Paul wanted to take the walk here in verse 13. I think maybe he just wanted that time with just him and the Lord. It's been a lot of ministry. Bible studies, raising people from the dead, being threatened. Maybe he just really needed to stop and say, Lord, it's just you and me right now. And I tell you, you will be blessed by that, without a doubt. Marv, come forward here for the final song. Next week we're going to get into the second half here of Acts 20 and the message to the church.